0: of Historiansplaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms, and if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. So for some time, I've been planning on giving a series of lectures on the history of Florida, and I expect that there will be probably three or maybe four. But regardless, I want to start the telling of the story of Florida. In the town of Titusville in the year 1982. So Titusville is a large town of about 40,000 people in east-central Florida. It's on a body of water called the Indian River and across this channel is Cape Canaveral, which is famous as the site where American spacecraft are launched into space. And Titusville was booming in the early 1980s. It was the site of a concentration of rapidly growing high-tech industries, electronics, aerospace, satellite communication, all of which in some way were spurred on by the U.S. space program. And the entire stretch of Florida coast around Cape Canaveral, with Titusville in the middle, has been known as the Space Coast since the 1960s when the Apollo program took off from Cape Canaveral. And in the early 80s, the Space Coast was particularly prospering from the new Space Shuttle program, the first technology to launch reusable spacecraft that could return to Earth. And with these industries growing and with a lot of high-paid positions, lucrative positions in these industries. Naturally, there was a skyrocketing demand for housing, including higher-end housing. So it's not at all surprising that in 1982, just the year after the launch of the first space shuttle in 1981, two developers bought up land in the southwestern inland part of Titusville, basically boggy and swampy woodlands, which they hoped to clear to build 50 luxury homes. And one morning in April 1982, a backhoe operator named Steve Vanderjagt was dredging peat and mud out of the bottom of a small boggy pond, which the developers planned to build a road over. But as Vanderjagt was digging through this muddy material, he saw in the scoop of his backhoe what looked like a large rock, a sort of light golden brown round rock, which struck him as unusual because it's not at all common to find large stones of any sort in this sort of swampy terrain in Florida. So he stopped the machine and got out and investigated, and he pulled the large rock out of the mud and turned it over in his hands and found two eye sockets looking back at him, and he realized that what he was holding was a human skull. So he was naturally intrigued and alarmed. And he found, as he looked around, he found more bones, which seemed to be human bones, scattered around in the muck and mud that he had been dredging. And he collected them together into a large bucket and brought them to one of the developers who owned the site named Jim Swan at his office. And Swan, too, was intrigued and alarmed and wondered if this might be a sign of some crime. So he took the bucket and walked on foot to a nearby station of the Florida Highway Patrol. But apparently, the highway police only responded nonchalantly, quote, we only do car wrecks. So instead, Swan took the bucket of what seemed to be human bones to the coroner. And the coroner's office determined, based on the total loss and decay of tissue and on the state of the teeth, they determined that the bones had to be fairly old, certainly more than 100 years old. But it also seemed that they couldn't be too much older than that, since finding human bones in Florida is extremely rare. The soil is very acidic. It tends to break down any sort of human remains, including bones and even teeth, after about five or six hundred years. So it seemed as if maybe these remains dated to the colonial era, but were not connected to any sort of prosecutable crime. So the coroner simply put the bucket of bones away then Jim Swan had to fight for a certain length of time to convince the coroner's office to give them back to him. And when he got them back, he put them for a while in his garage, but there wasn't much room for them and more bones started to be found around the pond. And so as they built up, they stowed them away then in the small trailer at the construction site. But finally, in his confusion and frustration, Swan contacted an archaeologist named Glenn Doran, who was a professor at Florida State University, and asked him to come and examine the remains that they had found. And based on the conditions of the very worn teeth that were still intact in the skulls, Glenn Doran concluded that, in fact, these were more than 500 years old. And he surmised that the bog water, which often is completely deprived of oxygen and may also be pH balanced, more alkaline than the acidic soil around it, he figured that these bones and teeth had been preserved in the bottom of the boggy pond as has been known to happen in many other places in the world, including in Europe, where so-called bog bodies in even more perfect states of preservation have been found from thousands of years ago. So this opened the door to the possibility that these remains found in the pond at this Windover construction site might be a great deal older than just a few hundred years, maybe older than had almost ever been found before in Florida. So he took samples from the bones and sent them to a laboratory that could do radiocarbon dating, and the first results that they got back from these first two samples, reported that the materials were at least 7,100 and 7,200 years old. In other words, more than 10 times older than any other human remains that had been found in Florida, except for a few small exceptions in other boggy ponds. So right away from those results, Glenn Doran and his colleagues realized that this was a major archaeological site. And the developers of the Windover Farms development that was being built quickly redesigned in order to steer clear of the pond and preserve its surroundings. And they donated equipment to the archaeological team to help to drain the pond so that it could be excavated. And teams began to excavate the pond after pumping out water through surrounding wells and exposing the damp peat. They began to excavate and they had to work very slowly and carefully because if the peat and mud dried out completely, then that could destroy the bones. If they were exposed to dry air and dried out quickly, they would simply crumble to dust. But at the same time they had to remove enough water to be able to walk and dig on the bed of the lake so it was an extremely tricky balancing act that had to be managed very carefully stage by stage and over the course of those first two years they found many bones from people of all ages and both sexes and they were able to determine that the pond had been a burial site for at least 1,000 years, at least the period from about 6,000 B.C. to 5,000 B.C. and maybe even earlier than that, for possibly over a thousand years. But these bones were very scattered. A lot of them seemed to be disconnected. It was very hard to reconstruct how many people had been interred or how the pond had been used. And it seems that most of these bones that they found in 1984 to 5 had been moved about and stirred up as the water levels shifted up and down. But in the third year in 1986, they were able to reach deeper to a level below the disturbed peat. And they started to find more intact grave sites. They found that the people had fairly consistently been buried in a fetal position facing to the west. They had all been buried within no more than 48 hours of their deaths, and they were laid into the water wrapped in cloth, and these cloth shrouds were then held in place with wooden stakes driven through the cloth into the underlying peat. And they even were able to find sizable pieces of intact cloth. And this cloth showed multiple different, very sophisticated patterns that clearly had been made with complex looms. And these pieces are probably the oldest intact cloth that's ever been found in the world. The people were also buried with objects like tools made of seashell, animal teeth, wood, and tortoise shell. The burials, it seems, all took place around the same time of year, in late summer or early autumn. And hence, the archeologists surmised that this was probably a nomadic or semi-nomadic group that moved around seasonally and only lived by this pond during that particular time of year. Now, as for the actual human remains that were found, what do they show? Well, they found a total of 168 different people who were buried here over the course of a bit over a thousand years. And it seems that they did not live an easy life. About half of the people buried were children or young adolescents, and the adults seem to have ranged in age up to their 60s. A lot of the human remains show signs of serious injuries, some of them probably accidents like severely broken legs that didn't heal properly, There are a few injuries that suggest violence. One obvious one is a young man who was interred with a spearhead still embedded in his hip. Another man had a broken brow and eye socket, so maybe this is a sign of fighting with fists or clubs. Many others also had health problems that weren't necessarily connected to violence. They had severely worn teeth, which tends to be common among people who eat wild food with a lot of sand or grit. Some of them had abscesses in their jawbones. There was a common occurrence of osteoporosis and osteoarthritis. And interestingly and most significantly, there was one teenage boy, aged probably 13 to 15, who had spina bifida, a deformation of the backbone, which causes paralysis of the lower body. And it seems that this boy was paralyzed and had severe infections in his legs. And these cases of people with severely broken and badly healed legs or with paralysis, like the young man with spina bifida, These were remarkable and revealing to the archaeologists because they show that these individuals would have been immobile, either for long periods of time or permanently. And yet, they were still fed, cared for, and kept alive for many years, despite these disabling conditions. And this shows that this particular group, even though they were nomadic and moved from site to site, nonetheless, they took disabled or immobile people with them and cared for them. There also is evidence about their diet and what kept them alive. So it seems that this group of people who buried their dead at Windover Pond eked out an existence from a much more dry and cool environment than we are used to thinking of when we think of Florida. At the time when they lived, the climate was different and the landscape was more dry and more grassy and didn't necessarily have the abundance of tropical plants and animals that we are used to thinking of. And it seems that these people lived by hunting, small animals, gathering, and also gardening in a sort of savanna-like environment that had small ponds and so-called hammocks or higher spots with trees. They may also have spent time at sites along the coast and obtained fish, shellfish, and shells, We also know that they ate animals like turtles that tend to be around watery environments. But it's hard to say much about that because what would have been the ocean coastline for them has been long submerged and is almost impossible to find or excavate. Their diet, though, was mostly plant-heavy. A lot of gathered seeds, nuts, fruits like prickly pear. In some cases, in some of the burials, it was actually possible to determine their last meals by finding the materials around their remains. And these included a lot of fruits and berries that are known to have pain-relieving properties, such as elderberries. And this suggests that some of these people were probably enduring a lot of pain in their last hours. It also is early evidence for medicinal use of plants. It also is evident that these people performed some gardening. Although they did not farm, they did not grow crops or cereal grains, they did do what archaeologists call horticulture, sort of small-scale temporary gardening. And this is seen especially in the fact that several of the people were buried with bottle gourds a sort of large, strong gourd that is useful as a container, a drinking vessel. And bottle gourds are not very strong or hardy in the wild. They tend to need cleared ground and support from humans. They also grow very fast, like most gourds, and hence it's possible to garden them and harvest them, even at just a small temporary site. They do not require year-long tending, like maize or other crops. And so among the very important discoveries and takeaways that archaeologists got from this pond are the fact that these people gardened, that they cared for the weaker or immobile members of their group, and that they wove cloth. But there are still certain persistent, enduring questions that were hard to answer and for which we can mostly only conjecture. One is, who are these people? Where did they come from and what became of them? And secondly, why did they bury their dead in the pond? Well, as to the first question, there are some partial answers that can be discerned because of the incredible state of preservation. So archaeologists found, although the skin and musculature and ligaments of these bodies were basically all long decayed away, Nonetheless, inside the crania, in some of them, they were able to find preserved brain tissue. So in 91 out of the 168 burials, some brain tissue was still existing, and in a few, there was an entire intact brain. So with the technology that existed in the 1980s, they were able to take out some samples of DNA, mainly mitochondrial DNA which tends to remain intact for longer and which happens to be passed down. It's a specific segment of DNA in the mitochondria of the cell, which is passed down basically intact through the maternal line from mother to child. And so mitochondrial DNA from various people around the world can be classified into so-called haplogroups, sort of distinct groupings that originate in particular parts of the world. And they found that this mitochondrial DNA belonged to haplogroup X, which is a comparatively pretty rare haplogroup. It's mainly found in Europe and the Middle East and nearby parts of Central Asia and North Africa. So initially archaeologists described this genetic profile as European, But in more recent times with more data, it has been found that actually haplogroup X is found in some populations in Siberia and among some Native American groups too. So it actually is plausible that the Windover people who buried their dead at this pond were descended like most other indigenous americans were descended from people from east asia and siberia in particular who migrated across the bering land bridge into the americas but the fact that they all had haplogroup x is still very revealing it suggests that these people were part of a small fairly isolated group that did not intermix very much, at least not with women from other groups, and that they probably don't have a whole lot of descendants. Maybe, possibly, they even died out at some point in the prehistoric age, which might then account for why they stopped burying their dead at this pond around about 5,000 BC, maybe because their population was dropping off, they were being out-competed, or they failed to adjust to the continually changing climate and landscape But we can't say for certain whether or not they died out or have descendants, whether they intermixed with any other groups. We can't say without the fuller suite of DNA from the cell nucleus. But in more recent years, when archaeologists have tried to extract usable samples from these tissues, it's been found to be impossible. They are now too degraded. Either they didn't survive well enough in the pond, or they have broken down further since they were pulled out of that protected environment. So we cannot know what their fuller genome was. As for the second question of why did they bury in the pond... Well, there are several possibilities here. One is maybe that they knew, and in some way they were aware, that the peat at the bottom of a boggy pond had a preservative power, and that if you wanted to preserve remains or objects, that was an ideal place to put them. But... When you think about it, this seems unlikely. How could they have possibly determined that? How could they? It doesn't seem possible that they could have performed some experiment of burying someone in a a, a boggy pond and then examining them a thousand years later and seeing how well preserved they were. So it seems unlikely that they knew that. But another possibility is simply that underwater burial protects the bodies from scavenging animals. And when you consider that in this part of Florida, and almost all of Florida, the earth is very soft and sandy, it would be easy for animals to dig up and scavenge bodies that were buried in the earth. It also might have been for some sort of religious or cosmic reasons. For instance, it's fairly common in a bog for the water to give off bubbles and emissions of what's sometimes called swamp gas, a sort of sulfurous fume, which has a distinctive look and smell. It can create a sort of constant mist. It also often uh, ignites or combusts in some way and so glows. And so it can give off a glow through the night, and many people find this interesting, entrancing, suggestive of a sort of connection to the spirit world or the underworld. And we know that in other parts of America, it has been common for indigenous Americans to believe that ponds or small rivers are gateways to the underworld or the spirit world. So they may have been thinking along those lines, or they may have seen the glow as promising a sort of life-giving or life-preserving power, and hence they saw burial in the pond as an, an ideal place to commend the spirits of the dead to eternity or the spirit world. Now, regardless of those unanswered questions, all in all, the Windover Pond site, as it's now called, is one of the biggest and most preserved prehistoric burial sites that's ever been found anywhere in the world and probably the biggest and most important ever found in North America. Today, it's simply left by the side of a road surrounded by dense woods and thicket, with no public access or visibility. People driving by wouldn't even know that it's there, just like when Steve Vanderjagt first discovered it. There was nothing to give it away as a world-historically important archaeological site. But if it had not been for Vanderjagt and for Jim Swan and their persistence, the site might have been completely ignored and then built over. And this is very suggestive that there likely are more sites like this, especially in swamps, lakes, and ponds around Florida that are still undiscovered or that probably have already been destroyed and built over. And so in this way, the discovery of the Windover Pond burial site, I think, is emblematic of a special quality of Florida. Florida is a place where there has been rapid change and growth over many centuries, leading to deep layering of history with remains of different eras, different societies, different civilizations that have been packed close together. Not just the prehistoric age, when Florida was very populated and active, but also the Spanish and British colonial eras, the antebellum era and the modern era. And in this way, Florida is a lot like sites in the old world, like Rome or Jerusalem, that have this kind of higgledy-piggledy layering and cobbling together of different eras, different societies, different styles. But in Florida, it's even easier to miss or ignore largely because of the tropical environment, the density of the vegetation, the wildlife, which makes so much of Florida forbidding and mysterious and so many important sites and historical markers that are never seen except in those moments when people chop down trees or dig up ponds and some way disturb that tropical environment. And that's when discoveries are made. So the story of Florida, as I will try to convey it, is really the story of repeated attempts by different societies and civilizations to colonize and exploit this tropical landmass, which is attached to a mostly temperate continent. It stands out as this distinct and in many ways strange and unique environment connected to the rest of North America, and it is both appealing and challenging and dangerous, and usually at some point or other, as a society puts in the work, the resources to colonize and exploit Florida, at some point it is abandoned again and covered over until the next society comes along and builds over those remains. But the fact that Florida is so challenging and so complicated and so difficult to control and colonize leads to the illusion of it having no history. So this is the great irony of Florida. And this has been acknowledged often by Floridians themselves. For instance, the magazine Florida Weekly ran an article in 2020 which said, quote, if there's one thing that old timers hear from newcomers to Florida, it is this. This place has no history. Everything here is new. And this is incredibly ironic when you consider that actually Florida has the longest recorded history of any state in the United States. And it is, as you may know, the home of the oldest European-founded town in the United States. And if you take that recorded history together with the prehistory, like in the Windover Pond site, Florida actually has the richest longest and most complex history of any part of the U.S. And this history is always being encountered and confronted in one way or another, even if it is ultimately just to clear it away and discard it. And another emblematic example of this is the building of the Royal Palm Hotel, which Henry Flagler built on a sort of high spot on the north bank of the Miami River, right in what's now the city of Miami. And it was built with an enormous sixth-of-a-mile-long veranda. But in order for this hotel with its huge footprint to be completed, the builders had to clear out not only an ancient Indian burial mound but also the foundations of a Spanish mission and an antebellum slave plantation. So all of those layers that had accumulated in that one spot on the Miami River had to be cleared away for this grand Victorian American monument, which now is also gone right, and has made way for the urban center of Miami. So Florida history really raises questions as to what we actually pay attention to and count as history and how exactly history matters. Does history matter simply because certain things happened in the past or because they somehow shape or lay the foundations for life today? And in Florida, there is a tremendous amount that has happened that one can take meaning from, but it can be very difficult to discern and uncover exactly how it shapes these later societies and civilizations that are so completely dramatically different. So what I want to do now in the rest of this first lecture is just discuss what we know about the history of Florida before the first European contact in 1513. So it seems that the first people to live in the southeastern corner of the main landmass of North America, what we now call Florida, migrated there during the last Ice Age. But we don't know a great deal about exactly who they were or how they lived. There's very little evidence. And at that time during the Ice Age, of course, the landscape the shape of the land, and the climate were all very different. The sea levels were lower, so the peninsula of Florida was much bigger and wider, and the climate was cooler and more dry, and it seems that a lot of it was sort of cool, scrubby grasslands. And because the water levels have risen dramatically since that time, many sites have been submerged or have been in some way destroyed or eroded away. But it does seem that people migrated into Florida probably following the herds of megafauna like woolly mammoths and mastodons. Only a few artifacts, including a few preserved human bones and some crude tools, have been found. And these include sharpened stone points that might have been used as tools or weapons. And there is one exceptional piece of art dating to the ice age which has been found in Florida and it is a fossilized bone probably a mastodon bone with a fine small carving depicting a large animal it seems to be a mammoth And this bone with the mammoth carving picture was found by an amateur collector in Vero Beach. And he picked it up at a site called the Old Vero Ice Age Site. So that's simply a sort of boggy field in Vero Beach, Florida, just a bit north of Palm Beach, where preserved human and animal bones have been found in pretty large numbers for many years. And it suggests that that might have been some sort of gathering place where people brought slaughtered animals to butcher and eat during the later years of the Ice Age. And this particular bone with the carving must have been made before about 11,000 BC, at which time those animals, mastodons and woolly mammoths, went extinct in North America. And hence, it is the oldest piece of art that has ever been found in the United States. Now, as I said, we don't know a lot about exactly how people lived and survived in the Ice Age, but we do know a little bit more about what came later in what is called generally the Archaic Age. So this is the time when the climate had changed. It had become somewhat warmer and wetter, and the sea levels were gradually rising year by year. And it seems that people in Florida started to adjust to the new climate and changing environment in fairly consistent ways across the whole landmass of what we now call Florida, right, the peninsula between the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, and the nearby coastal areas, coastal stretches of North America, going up to what's now Georgia in the north and westward along the Gulf of Mexico to Mobile Bay in the west. So as the sea level was rising, it was still lower than it is today, and the peninsula was still a bit bigger and wider than we see it on the map now. And the coastline was unstable. Because sea levels were rising, storms and floods could shift coastlines fairly quickly. So it was not really possible for people, it seems, to set up long-term permanent settlements along the coast the population of Florida in general was fairly small. We're talking about maybe 10-20,000 people or so who lived in fairly small mobile groups that survived by hunting, gathering, and possibly gardening. And they moved seasonally among multiple different sites, taking advantage of different food sources like fish or small animals or fruits at the different times of year. And it is possible that they also set up occasional temporary settlements along the coast, but if so, they're now gone and submerged. It seems that the practices and the lifeways of these people in Florida in the early archaic age from about 8,000 to 5,000 BC were remarkably consistent, even uniform, all around Florida. For instance, there are a number of sites that have been found where people buried their dead in boggy ponds. The Windover Pond site is just by far the largest and the most preserved, but a few human artifacts and bones have been found in other ponds that seem to have been intentionally buried there. So that practice was widespread all around the region. And the modes of survival, of gathering food and seasonal migration all seem to have been fairly consistent. And again, the fact that the Windover Pond people seem to have been by that pond only in late summer and early fall, that is fairly typical, that they went to a place during that particular time of year when they could benefit from the ripening fruits. And it makes sense that there's this consistency and even uniformity around Florida. When you consider that the population was still very small and mobile, that means that there was constant movement and exchange among these groups, and not much local or regional variation appeared. Then the next period, from about 5000 to 3000 BC, more or less, archaeologists call the middle archaic period. And at this time, the sea levels stabilized, and so one could see a more fixed and predictable coastline than before and this allowed for more methodical exploitation of particular sites, particular landscapes, and especially of marine foods like fish and shellfish. This is the time when it seems mounds first started to appear. So people started piling up objects like shells, sand, other debris into sculpted mounds for whatever reason. There also started to be more long-term habitations where groups of people would live for most or maybe even all of the year. And these appeared especially in places with very abundant food sources like along St. John's River in northeastern Florida. By the end of the middle archaic period, around 3000 BC, Florida settled more or less into the, the landscape and climate that we know in modern times. So as for the landmass, it of course is a long, fairly flat extension of North America, which comes to a somewhat narrow point, an isthmus in the middle, before then widening again towards the south. And the bedrock basically is a shelf, a flat shelf of low, porous limestone, which has many sinkholes that can form into ponds and lakes. As for the coastline, there's a complex coastline with bays, barrier islands, and small round islands that we call keys, which is a word that comes from the Arawakan language for a small island. And in general, the coastline along the east facing the Atlantic is somewhat more unbroken and tends to have long Uh, straight stretches of coastline or long barrier islands with only occasional inlets, whereas on the eastern side along the Gulf, it's a more complex coastline with smaller islands, chains of keys, and areas of swamp and tidal inlets. As for the interior of the peninsula, this varies from the north to the south. So in the north, there are some small hilly ridges no more than a few hundred feet high, no mountains. And in the south, it is more flat, fewer hills or ridges. There is a large internal lake, almost circular, called Lake Okeechobee, which receives a great deal of rainwater in the tropical climate and which regularly floods with the floodwaters flowing mostly southward, making the southern and southwestern end of the peninsula into a seasonally flooding swamp. And as for the climate, most of Florida is humid subtropical with hot summers and cool winters. And this gives rise to a lot of piney woods and also some grasslands and savannas, which are dotted with small ponds and so-called hammocks or small raised spots with clusters of tropical hardwood trees, as opposed to the palms and pines that are more common in the lower sandy soil. So that is how the climate uh, appears in most of Florida, but in the south, basically from Lake Okeechobee southward. The climate is a tropical monsoon climate, so it's governed by the shifting oceanic winds and it experiences hot, very wet summers with frequent rainstorms and thunderstorms and warm but drier winters. And in general, the climate in South Florida is wetter to the east and drier to the west. So the far southeastern tip of Florida, around what's now Miami and Fort Lauderdale, that area naturally is tropical rainforest, and that was the environment for thousands of years. In the southwest, it is less rainy, and so naturally this gives rise to tropical savanna at least in the areas that are not regularly flooded by the overflowing waters of Lake Okeechobee, which produces marsh and swamp. So this tropical and subtropical environment presents certain distinctive advantages and disadvantages, which can make Florida both attractive and dangerous. So as for the advantages, it has a very green and fertile environment, verdant with rich plant and animal life, There are a great deal of birds, fish, turtles, and other small reptiles and mammals. There's rich aquatic life, including many kinds of shellfish, which are easy to gather and harvest. And there's very rich plant life with all kinds of productive fruits, berries, nuts, and seeds, and useful fibers from plants like palms that can be used to make clothing or for building or for weaving into cloth. There are also plenty of waterways for transit, so if you're in an age before steam or without horses, Florida is a relatively easy place to get around with all kinds of tidal channels and large rivers like St. John's River. There are no dangerous large predators, so Florida is home of course to alligators as well as black bears and panthers. But all of these very rarely attack humans. They're really not a major danger to humans, especially if you know how to steer clear of them. But the real disadvantages of Florida are things that we might not necessarily think of today. There is a lack of defensible high ground. One is pretty vulnerable to attack by powerful neighbors. The danger in terms of animals is not really alligators, but rather it's venomous animals such as snakes, spiders, insects, especially bees and hornets, which are very abundant, and in the water, jellyfish. Florida is subject to hurricanes and has been for thousands of years, and those are a major threat, again, especially when there is no high ground, and mosquito-borne illnesses, And that's something that was probably not such a big issue in the prehistoric age. But in modern times, mosquito-borne illnesses like malaria and yellow fever have been introduced from Africa and became a major killer in Florida. So those are the different push and pull factors about Florida that mostly came into place coalesced into this form in the later archaic age after about 3000 BC and so the people in Florida in the later archaic age made very intensive use of coastal food sources like fish and shellfish and they began to develop large permanent towns on the coastline and the most important town site that's been found and excavated in Florida is the so-called Hors Island site, which is on a small island in the area called the Ten Thousand Islands in southwestern Florida, basically down south of what's now Fort Myers. And Hors Island had a cluster of five very large shell mounds of different shapes and sizes that were built at different times and in different ways between about 6000 BC and 1000 BC. So this was a major site of human habitation and use for several thousand years. And it seems that the earliest two mounds on Hors Island were simply middens just sort of trash piles that formed especially from discarded shells that people were producing as they ate many oysters, conchs, whelks, clams, all kinds of shellfish. But the later two after those were may have begun as middens, but they were then intentionally built up and shaped with more shells and with sand carried in baskets. So it seems that Although these mounds might have initially started as just kind of accidents of discarded refuse, at some point the people of this town had a kind of aha moment where they thought these piles could be shaped and built up into something useful or interesting, a a safe spot, a high ground to serve as a lookout, maybe a ceremonial site. And these mounds became more and more elaborate and important. And all four of these were also found to have human burials in them as well, which probably were added in many years later after the mounds had already been created. So now the idea was occurring of using these built-up mounds as burial sites. And finally, they built a large shell ring, which is a curving mound enclosing a central plaza that was probably an important central site in the town. And as for the town itself around these mounds, archaeologists found hundreds of post holes of buildings and dwellings that it seems were made from saplings that were set into the ground and then bent into the frameworks of buildings and then covered over with palm thatch roofs. And it seems that this town reached its heyday round about the year 1500 BC, so around the middle of the second millennium BC. And at that time, it appears it was the biggest town in the entire southeastern region of North America, at least the biggest one that has been found to date. There have been found in around the site many tools made of shell and bone whereas if they made others out of other materials like wood or hide, those have long dissolved in the acidic soil. And as for their food sources, they consumed some seeds and fruits and also some land animals. But mostly their diet, it seems, was based on fish and shellfish, such as oysters, clams, conchs, and whelks. And the fish, interestingly, the bones have been found and collected and it seems that they were a very uniform size, which suggests that the people of hors Island were collecting these fish in large quantities with nets that were woven in such a way as to let small fish pass through. So all in all, this society at Hors Island was clearly based on pretty sophisticated and highly developed use of the tropical natural resources around them. But it seems that their customs, again, their customs and practices were not dramatically different from the other Florida populations around them. It doesn't seem as if there was all that much specialization, and probably the different peoples around the coast of Florida were probably still trading and communicating and exchanging with one another very frequently. But things started to change, it seems, after about 1000 BC. And this is the beginning of what's called the post-archaic age. So this era from about 1000 BC up to 1500 AD. And at this time, more technologies were developed or adopted in Florida for the gathering and storing of large amounts of food, particularly pottery. And it seems that with this ever-increasing sophistication in producing, gathering, and storing food, it became more possible for large populations to basically depend on local supplies rather than trade and movement around the peninsula. And so maybe for that reason, a divergence starts to appear starting around 500 BC, where local and regional groups start to diverge and develop very different lifestyles and lifeways. In the northern area, especially north of about Tampa Bay, the people became agricultural. They adopted domesticated food crops and used farming to support large inland villages and towns, as opposed to the coastal towns that had been more common in the archaic era. In the southern area, it seems that societies evolved into what archeologists have called the glades and bell glade cultures, which were concentrated especially around Lake Okeechobee. So there was a growth of population inland in the south too. And these societies were distinguished, at least archeologists distinguished them mainly by their pottery style. And the style in the Bell Glade and Glades area was a very strong pottery that was made from a gritty, sandy clay and usually undecorated so it was very practical and utilitarian but useful in storing up food and the people in tropical south florida practiced very intensive hunting and gathering the collecting of large stockpiles of food resources from the sea and from fresh water and the collection of useful materials like shells, objects like shark's teeth, which were used for cutting. And this most likely was a more practical and efficient use of this wet tropical landscape than agriculture. So agriculture was not adopted in South Florida by the glades or bell glade cultures, probably because it it was simply too wet. It was not the right environment for it and so instead what happened is that the systems of procuring food from the natural environment and ecosystems was honed to such a degree of perfection that it could support large concentrated even urban populations without farming and the most important site where we know that this happened is the so-called key marco site and this is another small island right near Horace Island in the southwest of Florida, on the edge of that so-called 10,000 Islands region. And Key Marco shows another series of large shell mounds like Horace Island. And also within the island, there, it seems, was another boggy pond. And the archaeologists who found the site called this the Court of the Pile Dwellers, because they saw the people of the island as living on these shell mounds or piles. This site on Kimarco was excavated in the 1890s, and they found hundreds of distinctive carved and shaped wooden objects, more than a thousand in total, which is the most of any site that's ever been found in the eastern United States. And they found many other objects also of bone, hide, shell, stone, and ceramics. And again, ceramics were an important innovation now that were used extensively that hadn't been known in Florida in the Archaic Age. And these objects include bowls, dishes, clubs, and other weapons, carved statuettes, and masks, most of which were also colorfully painted. And they also found something distinctive and unusual from this sort of site, which was a large flat-top mound that seems to have had a structure built on top. So this is earliest evidence of so-called platform mounds, where people built houses or meeting halls or temples of some sort on the level tops of mounds. So the Key Marco site is remarkably rich. It sort of combines the special island environment, like Whore's Island, with the preserved objects from the bog pond, like Windover Pond. But it's very difficult to date, The artifacts cannot be carbon dated because when they were excavated in the 1890s, that technology didn't exist yet, but they've been out of the ground for so many decades now that they cannot be dated precisely. But it's significant that in all the material that's been found on Key Marco, there is no sign at all of European contact. So that makes it overwhelmingly likely that it dates entirely to before 1500. And rough guesses are that it probably was a large town in the first millennium AD, up to maybe about 1500, and then was abandoned because of demographic collapse after that point. As for the particular styles of Chi Marco, they stand out as very distinctive and unique unlike the art objects that have been found in other places around Florida, much less the other parts of North America. But it seems that they evolved. So initially, the inhabitants that built the town and created the early artifacts are believed most likely to be the ancestors and forebears of a tribe called the Muspa, which survived in some form into modern times, but we don't know a lot about them. We just know that they were in that area. But after about 1300 AD or so, using our best dating guesses, the styles started to change and evolve, and they started to resemble more closely the artwork like masks and figurines that were produced a bit farther north, up the Gulf Coast, and the styles of that region of that society around what's now fort myers and northward are called calusa hachi and they're associated with the calusa kingdom which I'll talk about more later, which was a major regional power. And so it seems reasonable to suppose that this town on Key Marco first grew and flourished as its own sort of independent polity of the Muspa before it was gradually taken over, maybe conquered, maybe uh, politically absorbed into the Calusa kingdom, which then rose to become the major power of that whole part of Florida. Now, outside of Whores Island and Key Marco, which I've already talked about, there are a number of other mound sites that were built around Florida, including southern Florida, in the interior, not on these coastal islands. And these mound sites... It seems as if they're probably mimicking the mounds that were first built along the coast because they involve huge amounts of shells and sand that was hauled in by hand from the seashore and dumped in basketful by basketful. And 12 of these mound sites are clustered around Lake Okeechobee, which again seems to have been the biggest, most densely populated part of South Florida. And the biggest and most important of these sites is called Big Mound City, and that is a 20-acre complex of burial mounds and artificial ponds that is right near the eastern shore of Lake Okeechobee, and it seems that it was built around about A.D. 500. Earlier, it had been thought that it was not that old, maybe from about 1,000, but now archaeologists think it's earlier than that, so may have developed around the same time that the town on Key Marco was thriving. And we don't know who built Big Mound City either, although it seems possible that it might have been the ancestors of a tribe called the Tequesta. And Big Mound City has a single large central platform mound with a level top, and it seems there was a village, maybe a a permanent year-round village, or maybe just a ceremonial village built on the mound. And then there are other features radiating out from this central platform mound. Pathways, raised causeways, and some causeways that then end in another smaller subsidiary mound, and then beyond that, a small artificial pond. So it was a whole landscaped complex. And it seems that these causeways that radiate out from Big Mound City point towards other villages and mound sites all around South Florida. So this suggests that there was obviously an awareness of the geography and of the different groups and sites around the whole region, and maybe there was some sort of ceremonial or diplomatic relationship among the different tribes and groups. Perhaps representatives or delegates from these different groups and sites might have met for ceremonial occasions at Big Mound City. But of course that's speculative. So that is a basic overview of what we can reconstruct about life and society in Florida in the Archaic and Post-Archaic Ages based on archaeology. Now, if we combine that together, then, with written reports and ethnography and linguistics, information that has been collected in the modern era over the last 500 years, and we combine that with the archaeology, we can roughly reconstruct some things about society, about the different nations and tribes, and the, the culture and politics of Florida in the age just before European contact So if we try to sort of map out and describe society in Florida, say in the 1400s, just before the Europeans show up, it's estimated that about 400 to 700,000 people lived in Florida. So it was fairly densely populated by the standards of the time. And it was home to about one seventh of the entire population of North America above the Rio Grande. So it was among the more populated parts of North America, and there were some common widespread practices that tied people together all around this region, such as observance of major holidays like the Green Corn Festival that was customarily celebrated in the summer around the summer solstice, but there also was a basic regional split that had emerged between northern and southern Florida. And you can see this divide between the two regions with a a line running more or less from Tampa Bay northeastward up towards what's now St. Augustine. There was a tremendous difference in the degree of Mississippian influence north and south of this dividing line. So to the north, there was a great deal of borrowing and interaction with the peoples of the interior of North America, which through the first and early second millennium AD was dominated by what we call the Mississippian civilization, a large urban network based around large-scale agriculture, especially of maize, beans, and squash, and that produced large cities like Cahokia and Kaskaskia in the upper Mississippi Valley. So northern Florida was very connected to that world and uh, shaped itself to some degree in their image. So they practiced agriculture, especially of maize. They built large towns, especially inland towns. They built platform mounds, similar to what you would see further north among nations like the Creek or the Choctaw. They tended to have strong rulers. They were often monarchical, and they had certain... Practices like the ball game, which I'll talk about later, which, again, connect them to the Mississippians and other societies in North America that put a great deal of importance on ceremonial ball games. And all of these things, of course, then are different in the South. You do not see agriculture. You don't see inland towns as much as coastal towns. The mound designs are different. You do not as often see strong rulers, although there is an exception I'll talk about, and the ball game just doesn't seem to have been significant in the south the way it was in the north. So there's this clear divide and basically it seems that certain large powerful groups emerged and took shape starting around 1300. That more or less seems to be sort of the watershed where groups consolidated into coherent societies or polities, and the different zones of Florida came to be dominated by one group or another. We basically can describe this sort of political landscape of Florida from about the 1300s to the early 1500s. And most importantly, there were three major groups that dominated the different parts of Florida, namely the Apalachee, the Timucua, and the Calusa. So the Apalachee were the major powerful group in the northwestern part of Florida around what's now the Florida Panhandle. And the Apalachee spoke a Muscogean language, so that's related to other languages further north like Creek and Choctaw. They were highly Mississippian-influenced, They practiced maize agriculture, and maize was a major staple of their diet. They also farmed squash, sunflowers, and other crops that had been domesticated in other parts of North America or in Mexico. And they also, they consumed these crops alongside gathering of other wild foods like strawberries, nuts, and hunting of deer and fowl, which were abundant in the subtropical woods. And they stored large amounts of food in pottery and in cellars. They often dried or smoked food such as meat and fish. And so they could build up large food stores that could sustain large populations through winters and through periods of scarcity so they had a resilient and populous society. They also used certain important plants for rituals. For instance, they gathered and dried wild holly in order to make the so-called black drink, which is a very strong caffeinated drink used for ceremonial purposes. They also grew tobacco for smoking and used smoking tobacco in political and diplomatic rituals, as was common in much of North America. And they lived in sort of scatterings of small farmsteads, villages, and some larger towns, which especially tended to be located on lakes. And these larger towns tended to have earthwork mounds. And the biggest known appalachian town was located at Lake Jackson, which is just a bit north of modern-day Tallahassee in the sort of north-central panhandle. But for whatever reason, around the year 1500, it seems that the capital and ceremonial center of the Appalachian was not at Lake Jackson, but at a town called Anjaika, which was newer, and is located basically right where the city of Tallahassee is now. And Anjaika was a large town with hundreds of structures, and it was the seat of a powerful ruler. So they had a king or paramount chief who was elected by a council of elders of the tribe so it was fairly centralized organized political unit the major unifying factor of appalachian society among all these villages and towns and farmsteads the major unifying factor aside from the common language and the ruler was the ball game and this is similar in some ways at least the significance of the ball game seems to have been very similar to ball game contests in the mississippian societies in other native american tribes in north america and in the mayan and and Mexica civilizations as well which would built special monumental courts for these games, reportedly games to the death, between aristocrats of those civilizations. So there was something sort of like that related to it among the Appalachee. So the people of the Appalachian kingdom put a great deal of time and resources into this highly competitive game. It was played on a ball court where players would try to kick a ball in order to strike a goalpost. And the game was often rough and even violent. There were a lot of injuries, reportedly occasionally even deaths. And each village had its own ball game team. And they would challenge one another, issue challenges to each other to matches. And the villages competed not just to win these games, but they competed to recruit and hold star players. So it was remarkably like, you know, a modern sports league. Also, the game seems to have had a religious and medicinal significance. So the injuries that, that one could sustain in this game were sacrificial. They were understood as sacrificial and could be healing. And in addition to that, it probably had a sort of social purpose of managing tension and conflicts among men and among different villages in order to keep stability in Appalachian society. So while the Appalachie were the main power in the northwest part of Florida. In the northeast, the main predominant group, at least, was the Timucua. And the Timucua are significantly different. They were not a centralized, unified kingdom or empire. Rather, Timucua is just a term referring to a broad group that was spread all around the northeastern and north central peninsula of Florida. And it was basically a series of villages and small chiefdoms, about 35 of them in total, that spoke a common language, Timucuan language, that had some somewhat different regional dialects, but was still mutually intelligible. And these villages and small chiefdoms sometimes confederated together, made alliances, but also sometimes fought among themselves, and there was no central capital or ruler in the West, the Temukua tended to be more focused on exploiting forest food sources, such as, you know, hunting and gathering, whereas in the east they were more focused on marine food sources and fishing. The major eastern Temukuan subgroup was called the Mokama, which in the Timukua language just means ocean. So they were the people of the ocean and they controlled most of the coast about from St. John's River northward up to the Sea Islands. And there were certain common customs, aside from just the language, there were common customs and practices that tied the Tumukua together. The various villages were organized into matrilineal clan groups and they made buildings of timber and thatch which were surrounded usually by wooden palisades, so they were fairly uh, defended by the standards of Florida at this time, again, where it's not possible to build a hilltop stone fortress like you might have in Europe. And they exploited a mix of different food sources, with some agriculture, especially of maize, squash, and tobacco, but not as extensive as one would see in the Appalachian Kingdom. They also practiced a lot of gathering of wild foods, hunting of both land and sea animals, including manatees and whales. And they were known to sometimes barbecue meat over an open fire. And this is one of the first places that Europeans eventually learned about barbecuing. They also had a set of similar but not identical ceremonial customs to the Appalachian. So you can see some shades of commonality. They also produced the so called black drink and they grew tobacco and smoked it ceremonially. They did play some version of the Appalachian ball game, but also another ball game where one used one's hands. So, as opposed to just kicking with the feet, as was the Appalachian rule, they also had another variation with the hands, and they reportedly also took part in elaborate contests of archery, running, and dancing. They built some ceremonial mounds as well, but these mounds belonged to individual clans rather than to the town or to the ruler like one saw in other societies. And they also made use of ceremonial feathers and tattoos on the skin in order to distinguish people and especially to mark them, literally mark them with their accomplishments. So for instance, a warrior who achieved a great feat in battle or who won a great victory at the ball game might have a tattoo. So while the Apalachee were the major power in the Northwest and the predominant group in the Northeast was the Timucua. In the south, the major power was the Calusa, and the Calusa were a very powerful kingdom, and it seems to have been run in a more or less authoritarian manner. And the core territory, this sort of domain, the properly speaking of the Calusa, was along the southwestern coast from what's now called Charlotte Harbor down to the southern tip of the Florida peninsula. So the kingdom's territory included various barrier islands and bays, the so-called 10,000 Islands region south of that, and much of the Everglades swamps, all of which were very rich food sources. And they built towns with large communal houses. They had a capital at Mound Key in Estero Bay, so a little bit north of those older towns that have been found at Horse Island and Key Marco. And Mound Key was a small, round island where they built massive shell mounds. And it seems to have been the sort of political and ceremonial center of the kingdom. The Calusa were a highly stratified society with distinct noble and commoner classes. They had a very powerful leader who was seen as a kind of divine king or chief who held court in a great hall on Mound Key. And the ruler could dispatch out warriors and war parties that traveled mainly by sea-going canoe. And they were reportedly very warlike. And their name, Calusa, probably originally means the Fierce People. They often went on expeditions and, and invasions and took captives, especially women. And incidentally, the island Captiva, which you may have heard of right next to Sanibel in southwest Florida, Captiva was later named that because of the captive population, where the Calusa would take uh, prisoners from surrounding societies and then sort of deposit them in the island of Captiva. There's a great deal that we don't know about the Calusa. For instance, their language is totally unknown. It is long extinct. Only a few words of it were ever recorded, and we cannot say whether it was related to the Timucuan or Apalachee languages. In terms of food, they showed a very heavy reliance on fish and shellfish along the coast, but their settlements inland relied more on hunting of deer and other small mammals. There was a great deal of gathering of seeds and nuts, and some plants for their flavors, such as chilies and papaya. But these were all wild plants and fruits. There is no evidence of any agriculture. There was some small-scale gardening, again, of bottle gourds and also of pumpkins, but not so much for food, but rather as tools like containers or floats to float fishing nets. They also made hand tools from shells, gourds, shark's teeth, and palm fibers. They showed very little personal adornment. So whereas tattoos, feathers, and sometimes jewelry were common in the north, the Calusa had very little personal adornment. Jewels, it seems, were worn by the king and queen. They did do body painting. That seems to have been their main personal adornment, body painting, but not tattooing. And they also produced some very sophisticated ceremonial masks, some of them with moving parts like puppets that were probably used in processions and rituals to be intimidating, uh, entrancing, and maybe to impersonate gods or ancestors. And it seems the Calusa believed in three main creator gods, and they believed that three different souls inhabited each person. And they had a distinct priestly caste that derived its authority from the connections to the gods and their understanding of these three souls. And reportedly, they put on impressive ceremonies with large processions, including priests and young women. So if the Appalachee, the Timucua, and the Calusa were the sort of three major powerful groups in the Northwest, the Northeast, and the Southwest, there were also various other minor, probably smaller groups all around them and in the margins in between their sort of spheres of influence around Florida. And some of those include the Pensacola, which were a smaller tribe related and similar to the Apalachee that also had many distinctively Mississippian sorts of customs that were further west, right, around what's now called Pensacola Bay, naturally. There also was the Tocobaga in the Tampa area, the sort of central west coast of Florida. And the Tocobaga, it seems, had a principal town located at what's now called Safety Harbor at the northwestern corner of Tampa Bay. But apart from that, we really know very little about them at all. And finally, there was a string of significant tribes along the southeastern, far southeastern coast of Florida in that tropical rainforest area that's now sort of the area of Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, etc., And these smaller tropical rainforest tribes include the Ais, the Jayega, and the Tequesta. It seems that they lived mostly in small villages and nomadic and semi-nomadic groups. And they traded important commodities from the ocean resources like, like seashells. But it seems that they, at least by the 1400s, they were increasingly politically dominated by the Calusa who were the real power throughout South Florida. And reportedly they paid tribute of some sort to the Calusa, including in the form of a bread made from starchy roots. So that might have been a resource that they had access to in that particular environment. They made it into this bread, and this is part of how they paid tribute to the Calusa kingdom. And we don't, again, we don't know much about these smaller tribes along the southeast coast, but it seems as if probably the Tequesta were the biggest and most significant. And they did have some sort of permanent town site on the Miami River, which included foundations of about two dozen buildings. And the Tequesta, it seems, did have powerful chieftain leaders with some sort of ceremonial importance, but we don't know much beyond that. We know far more about these larger, more impactful societies that predominated in the different parts of Florida, the Apalachee, the Timucua, and the Calusa. But this more or less seems to have been the map of Floridian society and civilization as of the 1400s. And at some point towards the end of that century, maybe around 1498, some people along the coasts of Florida probably started to see appearances of strange large boats with sails. Now, seagoing boats would not have been a totally new thing to the people of Florida. There were large seagoing canoes which traveled all around and sometimes even to the Caribbean, but sailing vessels would have been something new and strange. And we don't know what the people in florida would have thought of them or made of them and we don't know if any attempt was made to communicate with the people on these sailing ships but probably not considering that no record of any interaction with these foreign visitors is recorded in the oral traditions of the indigenous people or in european written records so probably no direct contact happened But starting a few years later, around 1500, refugees, boats full of refugees started to appear and land on the southern end of Florida. And these were indigenous people from Cuba, from the large island 100 or more miles to the south, which Floridians knew, had known for a long time, existed and had some contact with. But this was a new occurrence to see hundreds of people showing up on the shore from Cuba. And these people, it seems, told stories of a strange foreign tribe that had landed and invaded in Cuba and the neighboring islands around the Caribbean and who had attacked and enslaved many of the towns and kingdoms of the island. And these people who were coming across and landing in Florida obtained refuge from the Calusa. And this arrangement made a great deal of sense for both sides. The Calusa were a major, powerful, militaristic kingdom that could plausibly protect these refugees from Cuba. And additionally, they wanted more people right human beings were a scarce and valuable resource in florida as they were all over most of north america and it was considered advantageous to take in foreigners whether as captives or in this case as willing refugees so there was it seems a refugee migration from the greater antilles into the calusa kingdom already By the early years of the 1500s. But at least for a while, it seemed possible that maybe they were safe there in Florida from these foreign invaders who had come from across the sea. But then finally, one day in early April 1513, a set of three ships, two caravels and a brigantine, did land, and people came ashore on a beach somewhere in the east-central coast of Florida, maybe around what's now Melbourne or maybe farther north. It's not known for certain. But wherever it happened, this crew of foreigners, including Europeans and Africans, came ashore and confronted and began to interact with the local people. So who were these people? Why were they there? And what effect did their landing have? What were the ramifications? I will talk about that hopefully in my next lecture on the history of Florida. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to keep these podcasts coming and if you want to hear my patron-only materials, such as my last lecture on the history of the United States and 100 objects, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.